Book the First, Part Nine of A Laodicean by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Book the First, Part Nine. Somerset returned to the top of the great tower with a vague consciousness that he was going to do something up there, perhaps sketch a general plan of the structure. But he began to discern that this Stancy Castle episode in his studies of Gothic architecture might be less useful than ornamental to him as a professional man, though it was too agreeable to be abandoned. Finding after a while that his drawing progressed but slowly, by reason of infinite joyful thoughts more allied to his nature than to his art, he relinquished ruler and compass, and entered one of the two turrets opening on the roof. It was not the staircase by which he had ascended, and he proceeded to explore its lower part. Entering from the blaze of light without, and imagining the stairs to descend as usual, he became aware after a few steps that there was suddenly nothing to tread on, and found himself precipitated downwards to a distance of several feet. Arrived at the bottom, he was conscious of the happy fact that he had not seriously hurt himself, though his leg was twisted awkwardly. Next he perceived that the stone steps had been removed from the turret, so that he had dropped into it as into a dry well. That, owing to its being walled up below, there was no door of exit on either side of him. That he was, in short, a prisoner. Placing himself in a more comfortable position, he calmly considered the best means of getting out, or of making his condition known. For a moment he tried to drag himself up by his arm, but it was a hopeless attempt, the height to the first step being far too great. He next looked round at a lower level. Not far from his left elbow, in the concave of the outer wall, was a slit for the admission of light, and he perceived at once that through this slit alone lay his chance of communicating with the outer world. At first it seemed as if it were to be done by shouting, but when he learnt what little effect was produced by his voice in the midst of such a mass of masonry, his heart failed him for a moment. Yet, as either Paula or Mr. Stancy would probably guess his visit to the top of the tower, there was no cause for terror, if some for alarm. He put his handkerchief through the window-slit so that it fluttered outside, and, fixing it in its place by a large stone drawn from the loose ones around him, awaited succour as best he could. To begin, this course of procedure was easy, but to abide impatient till it should produce fruit was an irksome task. As nearly as he could guess, for his watch had been stopped by the fall, it was now about four o'clock, and it would be scarcely possible for evening to approach without some eye or other noticing the white signal. So Somerset waited, his eyes lingering on the little world of objects around him, till they all became quite familiar. Spiders' webs in plenty were there, and one in particular just before him was in full use as a snare, stretching across the arch of the window with radiating threads as its ribs. Somerset had plenty of time, and he counted their number, fifteen. He remained so silent that the owner of this elaborate structure soon forgot the disturbance which had resulted in the breaking of his diagonal ties, and crept out from the corner to mend them. In watching the process, Somerset noticed that on the stonework behind the web, sundry names and initials had been cut by explorers in years gone by. Among these antique inscriptions, he observed two bright and clean ones, consisting of the words De Stancy and W. Dare. 
crossing each other at right angles. From the state of the stone they could not have been cut more than a month before this date, and, musing on the circumstance, Somerset passed the time until the sun reached the slit in that side of the tower, where, beginning by throwing in a streak of fire as narrow as a cornstalk, it enlarged its width till the dusty nook was flooded with cheerful light. It disclosed something lying in the corner, which on examination proved to be a dry bone. Whether it was human or had come from the castle larder in bygone times, he could not tell. One bone was not a whole skeleton, but it made him think of Ginevra of Medina, the heroine of the mistletoe bough, another cribbed and confined wretches who had fallen into such traps and been discovered after a cycle of years. The sun's rays had travelled some way round the interior, when Somerset's waiting ears were at last attracted by footsteps above, each tread being brought down by the hollow turret with great fidelity. He hoped that with these sounds would arise that of a soft voice he had begun to like well. Indeed, during the solitary hour or two of his waiting here, he had pictured Paula straying alone on the terrace of the castle, looking up, noting his signal, and ascending to, to deliver him from his painful position by her own exertions. It seemed that at length his dream had been verified. The footsteps approached the opening of the turret, and, attracted by the call which Somerset now raised, began to descend towards him. In a moment, not Paula's face, but that of a dreary footman of her household, looked into the hole. Somerset mastered his disappointment, and the man speedily fetched a ladder, by which means the prisoner of two hours ascended to the roof in safety. During the process he ventured to ask for the ladies of the house, and learned that they had gone out for a drive together. Before he left the castle, however, they had returned, a circumstance unexpectedly made known to him by his receiving a message from Miss Power to the effect that she would be glad to see him at his convenience. Wondering what it could possibly mean, he followed the messenger to her room, a small modern library in the Jacobean wing of the house, adjoining that in which the telegraph stood. She was alone, sitting behind a table littered with letters and sketches, and looking fresh from her drive. Perhaps it was because he had been shut up in that dismal dungeon all the afternoon that he felt something in her presence which at the same time charmed and refreshed him. She signified that he was to sit down, but finding that he was going to place himself on a straight-backed chair some distance off, she said, Will you sit nearer to me? And then, as if rather oppressed by her dignity, she left her own chair of business and seated herself at ease on an ottoman which was among the diversified furniture of the apartment. I want to consult you professionally, she went on. I have been much impressed by your great knowledge of castellated architecture. Will you sit in that leather chair at the table, as you may have to take notes? The young man assented, expressed his gratification, and went to the chair she designated. But, Mr. Somerset, she continued from the ottoman, the width of the table only dividing them, I first should like to know and I trust you will excuse my inquiry, if you are an architect in practice, or only as yet studying for the profession. I am just going to practice. I open my office on the 1st of January next, he answered. You would not mind having me as a client, your first client? She looked curiously from her sideway face across the table as she said this. Can you ask it? 
said Somerset warmly. What are you going to build? I'm going to restore the castle. What, all of it? said Somerset, astonished at the audacity of such an undertaking. Not the parts that are absolutely ruinous. The walls battered by the parliamentary artillery had better remain as they are, I suppose. But we have begun wrong. It is I who should ask you, not you me, I fear, she went on, in that low note which was somewhat difficult to catch at a distance. I fear what the antiquarians will say if I am not very careful. They come here a great deal in summer, and if I were to do the work wrong, they would put my name in the papers as a dreadful person. But I must live here, as I have no other house except the one in London, and hence I must make the place habitable. I do hope I can trust to your judgment. I hope so, he said with diffidence, for, far from having much professional confidence, he often mistrusted himself. I am a fellow of the Society of Antiquaries, and a member of the Institute of British Architects, not a fellow of that body yet, though I soon shall be. Then I am sure you must be trustworthy, she said with enthusiasm. But what am I to do? How do we begin? Somerset began to feel more professional, what with the business chair and the table and the writing paper, notwithstanding that these articles, and the room they were in, were hers instead of his and an evenness of manner which he had momentarily lost returned to him. The very first step, he said, is to decide upon the outlay. What is it to cost? He faltered a little, for it seemed to disturb the softness of their relationship to talk thus of hard cash. But her sympathy with his feeling was apparently not great, and she said, The expenditure shall be what you advise. What a heavenly plant, he thought. But you must just give some idea, he said gently, for the fact is, any sum almost may be spent on such a building. Five thousand, ten thousand, twenty thousand, fifty thousand, a hundred thousand. I want it done well. Suppose we say a hundred thousand? My father's solicitor, my solicitor now, says I may go to a hundred thousand without extravagance, if the expenditure is scattered over two or three years. Somerset looked round for a pen. With quickness of insight she knew what he wanted, and signified where one could be found. He wrote down in large figures, one hundred thousand. It was more than he had expected, and for a young man just beginning to practice, the opportunity of playing with another person's money to that extent would afford an exceptionally handsome opening, not so much from the commission it represented as from the attention that would be bestowed by the art world on such an undertaking. Paula had sunk into a reverie. I was intending to entrust the work to Mr. Havel, a local architect, she said. But I gather from his conversation with you today that his ignorance of styles might compromise me very seriously. In short, though my father employed him in one or two little matters, it would not be right, even a morally culpable thing, to place such an historically valuable building in his hands. "'Has Mr. Havel ever been led to expect the commission?' he asked. "'He may have guessed that he would have it. "'I have spoken of my intention to him more than once.' "'Somerset thought over his conversation with Havel. "'Well, he did not like Havel personally, "'and he had strong reasons for suspecting that in the matter of architecture "'Havel was a quack. "'But was it quite generous to step in thus "'and take away what would be a golden opportunity to such a man?' 
of making both ends meet comfortably for some years to come, without giving him at least one chance. He reflected a little longer, and then spoke out his feeling. I ventured to propose a slightly modified arrangement, he said. Instead of committing the whole undertaking to my own hands, without better proof of my ability to carry it out than you have at present, let there be a competition between Mr. Havel and myself. Let our rival plans for the restoration and enlargement be submitted to a committee of the Royal Institute of British Architects, and let the choice rest with them, subject, of course, to your approval. It is indeed generous of you to suggest it. She looked thoughtfully at him. He appeared to strike her in a new light. You really recommend it? The fairness which had prompted his words seemed to incline her still more than before to resign herself entirely to him in the matter. I do, said Somerset deliberately. I will think of it, since you wish it. And now, what general idea have you of the plan to adopt? I do not positively agree to your suggestion as yet, so I may perhaps ask the question. Somerset, being by this time familiar with the general plan of the castle, took out his pencil and made a rough sketch. While he was doing it, she rose, and, coming to the back of his chair, bent over him in silence. "'Ah, oh, I begin to see your conception,' she murmured, and the breath of her words fanned his ear. He finished the sketch and held it up to her, saying, "'I would suggest that you walk over the building with Mr. Havel and myself, and to detail your ideas to us on each portion.' "'Is it necessary?' Plants mostly do it. I will, then. But it is too late for me this evening. Please meet me tomorrow at ten. End of Book the First, Part Nine